Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Alrighty, welcome back, everybody. I have a lot to get to in this video. I'm going to be talking about income, specifically dividend income. Going to be talking about a lot of news today. So Boeing CEO is doing a lot of damage control, released a bunch of information. Tesla's kicking out NVIDIA, making their own chips, and they did this big autonomous day announcement. And I have some updates on Disney and Netflix and the things that Netflix are doing to try to compare to Disney as well as encroaching competitors like Apple streaming service as well. So going to be going over all of that as well as answering some of your questions. First, those of you who are new around here, you may have just like had YouTube's algorithm or whatever recommend this video to you. You're curious, so you click on it and you might not know what you're looking at here. This is my personal investment portfolio. The strategy that I've implemented is called a dividend growth investing strategy, where the focus of it is not on capital appreciation, like most traditional portfolios, but it's on growing the amount of money you're getting paid by dividends and companies over and over again, month over month, year over year. The focus on it is having an ever-increasing cash flow that funnels into your portfolio and then redirecting that back into your portfolio to buy more shares, which causes a compounding effect. I can look at this and I can say, let's see the last month period. Now there's two different numbers where I make gains, market gains and then earn dividends. The focus on this portfolio is the earned dividends. Last 30 day period, I've earned $128 in dividends. Now, if I go to my activity feed, I can go here and this is just what's happened in my portfolio. If I made any deposits or if I got and paid dividends, I can look and eight days ago here, I got paid $37.91 in dividends from all these different holdings. And then that gets rerouted and I have it to set to auto invest back into my portfolio. It invested back into these four holdings and bought more shares. Now these four holdings, I have more shares of them. So they're going to pay me more dividends in this cycle of these companies paying dividends, being reinvested, buying more shares. And then them paying more dividends happens over and over again. And that's what I'm going to be talking about a little bit today. The purpose of this entire thing, the reason that I have it labeled as episodes, not just individual broken up videos, is because what I want to do is give you an inside look where you can see live this type of investment strategy played out week over week, month over month. It's like a reality show based around an investment portfolio. Now, I track this month over month to see the income. And you can see since I started in January 2018, at $0, it's gradually increased over time. Even if you're not doing this type of investment portfolio, I thought it would be interesting for people to be able to compare it to their style of investing, compare it to their holdings. Um, I want to give people an inside look. And I don't shy away when, like I know that I'm positive right now, but for instance, last week, the real estate holdings, REITs got pretty crushed. In fact, I don't shy away when that happens. If the portfolio goes down, if this went to the negative, the same thing. I'm going to still make videos and show you what's going on with my portfolio, the troubles it's going through. If we go through a recession and I shave off 50% of my portfolio or whatever happens, I'm still going to post videos and show you. In fact, the time when REITs went down, I posted a screenshot on Twitter of my $400 loss in one day. So I woke up with that and I'm not going to hide it from you. I'm going to let you guys see live every single thing that happens to this portfolio. Now, one of my viewers from the previous video that I did, 
uh, left a comment and asked a question. They said, so you made a pie for every sector with dividend yields. In M1 Finance, these are called pies, and in them you can like click into one, and it's just a way to organize holdings. I have In industrials, I have a bunch of industrial companies here. And they asked, so you made a, a, a pie with every sector with dividend yields, so all your stocks you hold all pay dividends. You have no growth pies? And he or she is 100% correct. I have zero companies. I don't own a single company that does not pay a dividend. And the reason why is because that goes against my goal of increasing my income month over month and year over year. I'm an income investor. I'm, in, I'm investing in companies that grow their dividends and a company that just grows in capital appreciation doesn't help me accomplish that goal. Now I'm gonna talk about the three different ways that your income increases with dividends, that you get that compounding the way that that happens. The first one, let me go over to the draw online thing here. The first one is pretty obvious, and that is deposits. That is you contributing money to your portfolio, and then that money purchases shares. Because you own more shares, now you have a higher income. You have a higher dividend income. And I can look at that here. I know that this is completely obvious. I have it set up, you know, I change this around once in a while where I automatically put money in, that money automatically make, makes purchases. When I have extra money, like $1,000 here, $1,000 here, I throw it into this portfolio, and that is the most basic way. You can see my funding history. I withdrew only a little bit of money here to pay down a debt. Ever since then, I've only been depositing money. You can see in 2018, I put $22,000 in. So far in 2019, put 10750 in. This is the most fundamental, basic way to increase your dividend and your passive income is by you working for money, going to your job, going to the rat race, grinding out your income, and then putting that money into your portfolio. Now, obviously, this way is the easiest way in terms of understanding it, but it's by far the most difficult way in implementing it. It's like, it's like okay, the idea of losing weight for a lot of people is very simple. You eat less calories, you exercise. But there's an entire billion dollar industry about helping people just do those two things, right? So just because something is simple to understand does not mean that it's easy to actually do. And making it so that you can have frequent deposits, so you can continually invest money, is very difficult for some people. If you don't have a high income, you need to work on getting your income up so that you have more leeway because the amount that you can deposit is the difference between what you earn and your cost of living. That's the amount that you can deposit. Now, there's also different different uh, mental factors and behavioral factors where uh, you need to learn how to budget, you need to learn how to pay yourself first, all that type of stuff. But this is the, the first step, the most fundamental way. You will never have a dividend growth portfolio if you don't actually start making deposits, start getting the thing going by your own paycheck. The second way, I'll list that out here, is... Dividends reinvested. So first you deposit your money, and then that buys you shares of companies that are dividend-paying companies. What those dividend companies do is they pay you dividends, and that's cash flow. And then what you do with those dividends, they're as good as cash, you reinvest them back in your portfolio. You saw me mention that earlier. I can go to portfolio here, I can go to my activity, all the money. So I've been paid out, I've been paid out $753. 100% of that has gone back into my portfolio. And I can see that happen over and over again. I can go to a dividend payment back here. Even when it's $10, M1 Finance can break up $10 with fractional shares and reinvest it back into other holdings. And then those other holdings pay more. This is the easiest part. This is literally the, the benefits of a dividend growth portfolio. Step two, the second way that you 
increase your income with dividend growth is by dividends being reinvested. This is the magical part of it where it compounds, and it's by far the easiest step to implement. The step one is by far the most difficult step. Now you may be asking, what's step three? If you're not familiar with dividend growth, this is the part where dividend growth is separate from most other strategies. With dividend growth, companies increasing dividends. So you've made a deposit, you've purchased different shares of companies, those companies pay you out dividends and those get reinvested. Well, that's great, but these first two steps you could do with just bonds. In fact, if I look at a, a bond fund, like let's take the uh, LQD, which is an ETF that, that tracks investment grade corporate bonds. Let's take a look at that. If I look at the dividend history payout of LQD, you notice that it pays pretty much the same amount over and over and over again. That's what you're going to see with bonds. What separates dividend growth from these first two steps is the fact that you get this third step where the company themselves, the amount that they pay in dividends increases over time. So if I look at like a company like O, which is Realty Income Corporation, I go to dividend history here and does that look a little bit different than LQD? You can see that over and over again, they continually increase their dividends. If I go to Dominion Energy, here's another dividend growth company. Let's go to dividends, dividend history. You can see that they continually increase the amount of dividends you pay. So if you bought this in 2004, every share that you bought would have paid 32 cents in dividends. If you just hold held on to those same shares that you bought for this price, now they paid 91 cents. So they've had a dividend increase of, of almost you know three times what they were paying previously. That is the most important step in distinguishing dividend growth from any other strategy. Now you may be asking with this third step, how do I identify companies that increase their dividends? Because not all of them do this. Not all of them are focused on dividends or increasing their dividends over time. Some of them are in more trouble where they might slash their dividend in the future than others. And I have, I did a video on this previously. If you go to my videos here on my channel, episode three is the one I would check out. This episode three where I say how to pick dividend stocks, M1 Finance, that is the one that I would look into. I go into a lot of detail. It's a half hour video on how to identify companies that follow through with increasing their dividends over time. Now there's some interesting parts about this type of investing and about investing in general that I've noticed. For instance, when I started building this portfolio, I, I was putting in like $1,000 or $2,000 a month and going from just your initial deposit of $1,000 or whatever it may be, putting that much money in, you just see this number increasing and you're, and you're building up your portfolio so fast and you feel like you're making so much progress. But then as you get to higher dollar amounts, when I get past 30,000 and I put in $200 or $300, uh, a lot of times, like in a one week period or just a one day period, my swings will be over $200. So I can put in 200, 250 bucks. And then that day I can lose more money than that. And that actually happened when I highlighted this on my Twitter, I put in like $500. Then I woke up the next morning and my real estate pie had fallen $400. So it was as if I just really put in a hundred bucks is what it felt like. In reality though, the thing I like about this investment strategy in particular is even when you buy on the ups or downs, you're still buying holdings that are going to pay you more cash flow. No matter when I deposit my money, whether I deposit on a day that it falls the next day or increases the next day, I'm still increasing the amount of cash flow I have. I'm increasing the amount of cash flow that this portfolio pays out, no matter when I buy high or low. As long as those companies still pay dividends, I'm still increasing my cash flow. So I don't have to worry too much about exactly when I purchase these holdings. I hope this gives you an idea 
of the three different ways that you can increase your income through dividends. These are the three different ways the people that do all of three of these correctly, that they consistently deposit money, that they reinvest all of that money that's being paid out through them through their income through dividends, and they identify companies that increase their dividends over time and have sustainable growth. Those people are going to have a lot of compounding that goes on with this portfolio. And that's why I prefer over a traditional growth portfolio. I know that's a shocking to some people, but that's the that's the reason why. So I wanna switch gears from this and talk about a little bit of news. And the first thing I wanna do is give you an update on what's going on with Boeing. They they came out with this video, and this is the CEO of Boeing here on the tarmac. And I think it's kind of a corny video where he's trying to do damage control. I'll just play a little bit of it. Hello from Boeing Field, where our talented test pilots have now completed 120 737 MAX flights, totaling more than 203 hours of airtime with the updated Maneuvering Characteristics Augmentation System, or MCAS, software. We're making steady progress towards certification. Yesterday, we completed the official engineering flight test of the updated software. He goes on, he explains how they're making this, you know, super safe plane even safer and that they're fixing the little errors that they had with it. And you can even tell, I mean, look at the, the upvotes and downvotes here, if you can even see that. It's 981 thumbs up, 764 thumbs down. Now, I'm no YouTube expert, but I know that when you have nearly 50% of the people downvoting you, that that's probably not a great ratio. And the comments are just the same. People are not happy with this. At least the average consumer, from what I see, is not happy with Boeing at all about this. A lot of people saying they'll never fly in the 737 MAX again and all of that. I don't really know. I mean, there seem to be the loudest people seem to speak out the most and, and you hear them the most. The average person might still just fly on this and assume it's safe if the pilots and everybody else want to get in it. But this has been going on for a while. They also, CNBC has an article um, with their earnings report and their guidance, all of that. And they, Boeing pulled their 2019 guidance, which means they put out guidance every year of how much they're going to make, all their projections, all that type of thing. And they, they said that we're pulling that back. We don't know because we don't have our planes in the air. So we can't tell you any guidance right now. The interesting thing about this, and I've talked about this as well, actually highlighted like, it was like two weeks before the, the second plane crash that I said Boeing is probably one of the safest picks because they have such a huge backlog, because they're so intertwined with the U.S. government, because there's only really one competitor to Boeing, which is Airbus. Um, and you look at this, that they've had such a big issue. They've pulled guidance in 2019. They hit their target for 2018, but people are looking to the future, not the past. And then if I actually go over to the stock today, how it's performing, after that information, they're up 1.1% today. After the the after the information that they're pulling their 2019 guidance. And that just shows you how resilient this type of stock is that people are expecting they it needs to be something terrible for it to go down. The planes crashing was terrible, but even if you look at the stock over the past let's do the past year to date, they're still up year to date 15 almost 16%. The stock's up year to date. This is when the incident happened sold down about 11%. When I did my video on, I think it was about here. So they, yeah, they've been down about 10% since I, I did a video on them. Now, I think that Boeing is still a long-term buy. Really, the one thing that could truly tank Boeing is if they have another plane crash. If they have another 737 MAX crash, if they kill more people, 
that will send it down. Um, especially if that happens in the U S and it, you know, it's closer to us. They can't blame it on pilot training or anything like that. Uh, it'll, it'll go way down. That's really the only risk at this point. People say, okay, well, there's comments. Like I had one comment on my last video that Boeing, you know, customers are going to move over to Airbus. That's great. But the thing is, is Airbus can only service so many customers. Both of these companies are backed up like crazy. The companies can't wait five or seven years to get their planes. They need to go to it. So even if they don't like Boeing, a lot of them might still have to go with Boeing because there's nobody else that really makes these type of planes. So to summarize my thoughts on this whole situation, I think Boeing will be okay and that they're a good long-term buy with the caveat if they don't crash any more planes. That's kind of the decision you have to make at this point. If you think that they have the potential to have another plane crash because of something they do wrong, then don't buy them. But if you think that they are not going to let any more planes crash, at least by something that they did, like this MCAS system, then I think I think they're still a good buy. Moving on from that, Tesla had its uh, autonomy, autonomous stay or whatever you call it here. And they unveiled a lot of stuff. One thing that they did was they, they kind of took fire at NVIDIA, which I didn't expect. But you can hear Elon Musk talking here. It, 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 at first, it seems improbable. How could it be that Tesla, who has never designed a chip before, would design the best chip in the world? But that is objectively what has occurred. Not, not best by a small margin, best by a huge margin. We switched over from the NVIDIA solution for SNX about a month ago, and we switched, switched over uh, Model 3 about 10 days ago. All cars being produced have the have all the hardware necessary, compute and otherwise, for full self-driving. All right, so Elon Musk saying that pretty much overnight that him and his team made a better chip than what NVIDIA can make. Now, I mean, I have this, I know that Elon Musk says a lot of stuff. He's actually, he's probably honestly my favorite CEO. If I was going to pick a favorite CEO, I just think that he's entertaining. I like following him on Twitter. Uh, I like that he doesn't fit in the mold of a CEO. He kind of just does his own thing. And he, he just does all these different crazy projects. It's hard for me not to like him. Now, what he says a lot of times, though, I think can be a little exaggerated. It's hard for me to believe that Tesla's team, that over a one-year period or you know over a couple months or whatever he's saying, that they designed a chip better than NVIDIA, which is a $100 billion market cap company that literally all they do is work on chips. And if you look at it, first of all, the, the picture of the chip that Tesla designed is awesome. They showed some graphics of it. It looks really cool. It looks really sleek. Um, but of course, I wanted to see NVIDIA's response to this because I'm like, did they really design a better chip? Like, what is NVIDIA going to say? Is there anything more to this? And of course, NVIDIA, they hit back a little bit. They say, Tesla was inaccurate in comparing its full, its full self-driving computer at 144 tops of processing with the NVIDIA Drive Xavier at 21 tops. So right there, that comparison shows that the Tesla one's a lot stronger. A, spokes says, a spokesperson said in an email, the correct comparison, this is NVIDIA speaking, would have been against NVIDIA's full self-driving computer, NVIDIA Drive AGX Pegasus, which delivers 320 tops for AI perception, localization, and path planning. And that's a lot, I mean, if you're looking at this rating, that's a lot higher than what Tesla's does. So that's the response. I mean, you can trust whoever you want with that. I know that uh, Elon Musk does like to speak boldly about things, and he's trying to sell his product, and that's what he's doing. Um, but I have a hard time believing that Tesla all of a sudden just came out with a better chip than NVIDIA. That's tough for me to believe. Now, 
on this autonomy day, they went through some pretty cool stuff. And a lot of it was self-driving. There's like this whole Tesla self-driving video where it shows in uh, high speed them going through for, I believe it's like, you know, hour long drive or longer. And it navigates it perfectly fine. In the marketing material, he talks over and over again about how many redundancies there are in it. That he goes over and explains how if any system fails whatsoever, there's total redundancy. If all the cameras fail, if the chip fails, if all that stuff, the car will keep driving, right? And it sounds great. In fact, if you look at it, Tesla's autopilot, which has been out for a while, which is supposed to warn them from accidents, this has been a thing that's around for a while. And there's lots of videos where it shows them avoiding accidents because this autopilot kicks in, takes over the car and protects the the driver and the people in the car. So I can show you a few examples of this. There's one there. So that car came from the left and they... uh, essentially had autopilot on and the reason that they're able to brake so fast now here's a pretty incredible one if you actually look at this footage way back right here in the background you can see the autopilot it does this beeping noise when it detects that a collision is going to happen and it detects it from like i mean this is like a hundred yards away it's telling these two cars are going to have a collision so look at this one it's quick See how the autopilot warned them in advance of that? Even though it wasn't their accident, it showed them that two cars were going to collide. The same thing happens right now. You hear that beeping, and then these two cars collide up in front. So that's the idea of it. Tesla has all this awesome technology. It does this whole vector map around the car with all the cameras that they use. And then it can tell based off the speed and momentum of the different objects and the size of them, if they're going to collide into each other or not. The issue with this is we've seen, I mean, I've highlighted on this show on my series. If you go back, I highlighted Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. And she had the same idea that technology, that all this new ways of automation, she's going to bring technology to make blood testing better. And what did that do? A lot of times that turned out a lot worse. She gave falsified tests and all this different information. It didn't go and work as planned. And now she's being charged with a lot of a lot of crimes. You look at Boeing, they came out with a plane that had some kind of problem with the actual design that caused it to stall. And what did they do to fix it? They implemented technology. They implemented software specifically that was supposed to predict if it was going into a stall and to and to counteract that. And again, technology played a role in causing those planes to crash. Compared to the ones that they just had 10 years before that, that didn't have this new system, that didn't have this new technology, those planes haven't crashed. You look at Tesla and it all sounds great from their marketing material. It all sounds great that they have these thousands of drivers going around and they they can grab all this information, they can do machine learning on it, that they can make it so it's the safest car ever, right? And part of the pitch of this is that, well, their cars are safer than average. So the average driver gets in this many accidents. The average driver has this many fatalities. And as long as they can beat the average, they'll say that their car is safer so everybody should use it. Now, the question I have is, is it safer for the above average driver? Because I don't want to drive in a car that's autopilot if it's just above average. I haven't gotten in a collision. I've never been in a collision in a car. Uh, And I've driven for like 12 years. Uh, I'm a very defensive driver. I look out for those type of things. I don't text why I drive. Are they ranking it against those people that are very, very safe? Or or are they just ranking it against people that, that are not safe when they drive? 
that are distracted while driving. That's a different argument to have. Like all these videos where you can see it avoiding diff- accidents and the autopilot going through and doing that, there are an equal amount of ones where you see this software not going as planned. Here's an example of one that it's trying to do the auto park software. Not gonna fit. Mm-mm. Give up. I mean, look at this. He, he puts on the software and the car thinks it can fit there. This is Tesla software. Are you serious? There's more examples in that. Here's another one. It didn't see the barrier, didn't protect him from that. Like here's another example of a car clearly parked just in the the pretty much the middle of the lane and the Tesla's autopilot doesn't even come close to stopping in time and they're actually moving relatively slow. So again, I mean, you can chalk this up to, to bad drivers or say it's the driver's fault and the Tesla automation at least tried to help. The issue is, is that Will this make it so that if you have these kind of autonomous driving cars, that it will make people even more complacent with it? Because I feel like if they feel like they have this buffer of safety, they might be less aware of it. I have an overall concern with the overconfidence in technology that a lot of people seem to have, um, especially when it interacts with the physical world. Technology is great when it's on your phone and you're doing different applications, that type of thing. But when it starts affecting with aerodynamics, when it starts affecting with blood testing, when it starts affecting with cars driving themselves, these huge physical objects interacting, there's always going to be situations that, that your brain is faster at processing new situations that are entirely new to you than a computer would be. Um, and I don't know when we'll get to the point where the computer surpasses people's ability to identify new situations and correct for them. I have my concerns about that personally. I'm interested to hear your guys' thoughts, what you think will be with that. There's also some news they're going to have their whole autonomous driving fleet and put you know companies like Uber out of business. I don't see that happening anytime soon, but we'll see what they do with that as well. Moving on from that, I wanted to just touch on the last thing here, which is Disney and Netflix. Uh, I came across this article about cord cutters. That's the group of people that flee the cable TV services, and they pretty much subscribe to a few smaller... Uh, a few smaller specific streaming services. Now, most people favored Netflix, but this this article points out that the majority of people are moving away from anything that even mimics cable. So you have the services like DirecTV Now, Sony PlayStation View, and Google's YouTube TV. Most people are moving away from those bigger services that group everything together that cost like 50 or 60 bucks a month, and they're moving more towards services like Netflix, more like HBO, and these more targeted streaming services. That's part of the reason that I think Disney's going to do really, really well in the future. Um, A lot of people are worried about Netflix. There's a lot of talk about Netflix competing with Disney. I've already explained on this. I I don't think that they're really competitors to each other all that much. If I were to draw a Venn diagram, and you had the like two circles of them overlapping each other, the amount of content that actually overlaps is very small. Disney's pretty much, their streaming service, the Disney Plus, is going to be all family-friendly content. Their content like Deadpool and more more of their adult, mature content is going to be put on Hulu, which they own a large stake in. But their family-friendly content is, I think, a whole different target audience than Netflix. There is going to be some overlap. So you will hear some people that mostly had Netflix just because it was easy to put on for the kids. They're going to switch over to Disney. 
But a lot of people, I think, will have both of them. I think most people that have Netflix will just subscribe to Disney as well if they have kids or want that content as well. I can't see a lot of people fleeing Netflix for it. I do think that Apple is going to be a much bigger competitor to Netflix than Disney and certainly Amazon. There's another article here. It's Business Insider. It says, with Apple and Disney looming, Netflix is changing its strategy and letting creators peek into its walled garden. So what Netflix is doing is they've been, up until now, super exclusive and super private with their statistics on their viewership, what shows get viewed the most. They pretty much didn't want to bias viewers against certain shows or taint viewers against certain shows that have low viewership, low numbers. They wanted to avoid... uh, Uh, creators from criticism if their shows don't get watched a lot on Netflix or whatever. They had all these different reasons why. The issue is with all these new streaming services coming up, Netflix needs something to separate it from those other ones and to encourage creators to use it. And what they're going to do is they're going to use their massive viewership base as a reason to say, hey, look, look how much we expose people to our audience when you come with us. So they want to gobble up all the great creators with exclusive contracts and, and get them get them to come on their service rather than Disney's, Amazon's, or HBO's. And I don't know how well this will work. I mean, obviously, Apple has a lot of money to play around with. Amazon has a lot of money to play around with. So Netflix does have its competition cut out for it. I think Disney, out of all the streaming services, personally, I think they're in the best situation right now. They have a more, I think Disney has a more targeted audience, a more targeted niche than any of the other streaming services. While Apple and Amazon and Netflix are all going for kind of the same audience. I think Disney has done a good job in separating themselves, and I still think they have a massive audience that they're able to to gain. That's my thoughts on that as well. I'll keep you guys updated on it. I wanted to, uh, before I end the video, I wanted to answer a few of your questions, so I'll get to those now. This is actually interesting. I have one comment on my video, and then I got a question from an email from my Joseph Carlson show at gmail.com email. Uh, And I just want to put both of these questions up and contrast them with each other so that you get an idea with where people are and how different they are with their advice. And I think this is an interesting thing to look at. The first one, I'll go ahead and read the email one. He says, hi, I've loved your content and have seen most of your videos. And we have been trying to start with dividend and other investments at this time. But we feel like we we are a bit late to the show And we saw how things started in January and think we may be getting in at the wrong time because the market is at highs. The question is, do you think that we should wait or try to get into a new low when it comes up or jump in now? Now, that's a fair question. He's saying that the market is at an all-time high, which it absolutely is. And he's saying, I feel like we've kind of missed, we've missed the boat here. We should have jumped in earlier when it was a bit lower. Now we're getting a bad deal if we buy in now, right? Now, let me contrast that with this question. From, uh, from one of the commenters on a video. He says, Joseph, in my opinion, you're too young to be holding bonds. Be more risky. You have plenty of time. Bonds contradict your carefree capital appreciation approach since they are to preserve capital. Do you see the, the contradiction here with the two different people asking these questions? One is saying, I'm so nervous about entering the market right now at all that I'm considering just staying in cash because things are so expensive, things are at such highs that I'm I'm so cautious, I'm wondering if I should even enter the market at all. The other one's saying, cut out the most conservative part of your portfolio and go way more aggressive. You're young, just cut out the bonds. Those are the conservative part. You have a plenty of time, you know, forget what the market is and, and uh, be more risky with your portfolio. They are on polar opposite spectrum, right? And that's because they both have a different train of thought. 
So I think Kevin in this comment is saying, well, if you're investing in 30 years, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if the market's at an all-time high right now because you have plenty of time if it goes down that it will recover, right? So I wanted to go through both these questions and I'll go through Kevin's to start with because I know that this is a popular thing to just say, if you're young, invest in 100% equities because your timeline is 30 years. And that's the only thing that should take into fact because equities over a long period of time have had the highest returns. Anything else is an inferior vesting, investing strategy. You're doing an inferior investing strategy if you don't invest in just 100% equities, 100%, whatever's going to give you the longest return over long periods of time. I don't agree with this at all because what you're doing is ignoring the current market conditions. Right now, we are at the top of a 10-year bull run. Historically, bull runs have averaged like four years. So we're long overdue for a uh, bear market. We're long overdue for it. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen. It could go on for a couple more years. And that's why I'm still invested. But I think the current market cycle is something to consider even with your timeline. Even though I have 30 years to invest, I still am going to consider the market cycle and gauge my risk tolerance based off of that. Another consideration on top of your investment horizon is your current risk tolerance. Now, a lot of people say, well, whatever gives you the best return over a long period of time is just whatever you should go with. I don't think that's true. For instance, if you had the choice between averaging like a 9% return over a 10-year period, but you had these super drastic swings of 50% or more, like in 2009, the S&P 500, it fell 52%, right? Now, if you could greatly reduce the volatility, let's say you can make it so your portfolio only goes up and down 20% or at most 25%, but you get slightly diminished returns over long periods of time. Instead of averaging 9% or 9.5%, you manage 8.5%. Personally, I would choose the one that has way less volatility because I don't want to have to deal with the stress and anxiety of my portfolio having these gigantic swings. If I can reduce that, and I know I don't focus on capital appreciation, but if I can do things to protect it so that I don't have to deal with the same stress as somebody that their portfolio just fell 50% and they just lost from 300,000, now their portfolio is 150,000. If I don't have to deal with that stress and it diminishes my returns a slight bit over a long period of time, I'm willing to do that. So you have to look at the goals of it. I want a portfolio that focuses on consistent conservative gains over a long period of time. I don't want one that is just high growth and high volatility. The beta, the beta rating of the portfolio is important to me, which is the rating of volatility. That is an important consideration. So I have three different considerations I'm looking at. The first one is I'm looking at my investment horizon. I have a very long investment horizon. So should I invest at all? My answer to um, the first comment here would be yes, I think you should start investing. But I also have other considerations, which is the current market cycle. We are at the top of a 10-year bull run right now. It could go on for another 10 years. I don't know. But based off of history, I'm going to dial my portfolio more conservative than if we are just recovering from a recession, if we were two years in a bull market. My portfolio, if I was to rank it from a 1 being the most conservative and a 10 being the most aggressive, I'm trying to rank mine somewhere in the 4, in that area, 3 or 4, right? I want it to be pretty conservative right now. Because I feel like the market condition where we're in right now, things are expensive. And I feel like it's prudent to be more conservative. So that's another consideration. The investment horizon is one. 
the market condition, the market cycle that we're in is another. And the third one is your personality. Do you want to be exposed to drastic losses in, in capital? Do you want to be exposed to uh, the huge volatile swings? If you want to protect yourself from that to some extent, it is good to include some amount of bonds. There's a Vanguard study that I'll link in the description that went through a bunch of different portfolio allocations, mixture of bonds and equities, and they found that introducing 10 to 20% bonds can greatly reduce the amount of volatility in your portfolio while only slightly diminishing the returns over long periods of time. And I think that for me personally, with my personality, the goals that I have, the market cycle, I've dialed my portfolio specifically to what I think is best considering the risks of it. With the first commenter, whatever I, whether I think you should get in the market right now, I just I think you need to enter the market. I don't think you need to put all of your money sitting on the side in at once, but I think it's good to get the ball rolling. Start dollar cost averaging in. Start getting into the market. Personally, if I, if I were in your shoes, I would dial things conservatively. I would have some fixed income. I would have conservative dividend paying companies, ones that you're okay holding even in a recession. But I wouldn't just sit idly on the, the side of the market. So I hope that gives you an idea. I'm getting uh, criticisms. I'm getting advice from all different sides. There's people that have completely different opinions and different ways of viewing things and seeing things. That's okay. I'm just trying to explain the reasoning behind my portfolio, the, the considerations that I take when I make investing decisions. And for people that are new to it, they can evaluate it and take all that in and define a portfolio that fits with what they're more, most comfortable and what fits with their situation. Anyway, I hope that that was a fun video. Uh, I'll, uh, I'm excited to hear your guys' thoughts on it. For this weekend, I'm going to be doing another sector review. So you can look at that sometime this weekend. Uh, I'll be going over another holdings, explain why I chose them, explain any that I have on the watch list, that type of thing. So I look forward to seeing you guys then. Uh, if you want to keep tabs on this and see what's happening week to week, I'm going to keep doing videos. So be sure to subscribe. Check out my previous videos. On my homepage of my YouTube, I highlighted some of my favorites there, so you guys can go and check those out if you're new. Uh, I'll catch you guys later.